We are in week four of a sermon series through 1 Corinthians. So um, less than any of our guests this morning think that we regularly preach on 1 Corinthians 5 and church discipline, which we'd have from time to time, but we don't make it a practice every week. I didn't want you to think we were just cherry-picking this particular passage uh, this week. It is a sober passage, a very serious passage, and it's one that we're going to deal with this morning in some detail. But we've called this series through 1 Corinthians Church Challenges, and that's, in fact, what Paul is dealing with, a number of them, as he writes to the Corinthians. And we've already dealt with the first challenge, which is the challenge of division or factionalism or tribalism um, in the church, which, as we've discussed over the past three weeks, is alive and well in the Church of Jesus Christ today and needs to be solved with the gospel of Christ as well. So we come to our second challenge. We're going to be dealing with these six different challenges, I said, with three different sermons on each challenge. So this is the second challenge we're dealing with that we'll talk about over the next three weeks in chapters 5 and 6, Lord willing. The challenge is immorality. Our first challenge was division. This challenge is immorality. And so we're going to talk about the various forms of immorality that, have here, that show up here in the Corinthian church and how that can show up even in our own congregation as well, and how we bring the gospel to bear upon that particular challenge. So the challenge that we face this morning that we're dealing with is tolerating immorality in the congregation and the need for church discipline to deal with it. So we're going to talk about church discipline this morning, what it is, how we do it, when it should happen, why we do it, all those sorts of questions from 1 Corinthians 5. But I think it might be helpful on the front end to give us a definition of church discipline so we understand what we're talking about. Here's the definition I'm using this morning. Church discipline is a loving and necessary biblical process of confrontation and correction that is carried out by the church when a member of the body is in public, continuous, unrepentant, and serious sin with the goal of reclaiming and restoring that brother or sister to fellowship with Christ in his church. That's the definition I'm using. It's a little bit wordy, I know, but I hope you see the various components of it. All right, church discipline is a loving process. I hope to show you that this morning, even though many think it's not. It's a necessary process because it's a biblical command, and it's to be carried out through confrontation and correction by the church when a member is in public, continuous, unrepentant, and serious sin. All those words are important. With the goal being not to remove the person from the church, but to remove the person from the church that they might come back to the church. That is, come back to the church and to Christ repentantly, leaving their sin behind. So that's what we're going to discuss this morning. I have an, a brief outline that I hope will be helpful as I walk us through this chapter we will look at when church discipline happens in verses 1 and 2, how church discipline happens in verses 3 to 5, why church discipline happens in verses 6 to 8, and where church discipline happens in verses 9 to 13. First of all, when church discipline happens, verses 1 and 2, let's reread those verses again. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now today, many teachers are saying 
that the church must accept everyone without exception and make no judgments on anyone's behavior. However, Scripture is clear that churches, by virtue of being churches, must discipline flagrant sin among its membership. First century pagans in Paul's day in Corinth were notorious among the Jews for celebrating all kinds of sexual immorality. But there were some acts that even the Gentile pagans would not tolerate. And sleeping with one's stepmother was one of them. The Roman orator Cicero said that incest was virtually unheard of in Roman society. And amazingly, what the Romans found inconceivable, the Corinthians condoned as approvable. The world's standards in Corinth were higher than the church's standards. The church out-tolerated the tolerance of a debauched Roman culture and in the process invited the criticism and ridicule of that ungodly culture. This is bad in Corinth. They are in bad shape when the church is more holy, sorry, when the world is more holy than the church is. But how were the Corinthians responding to this? They were proud, Paul says. They were arrogant. They were boasting, verse 6 says. Paul says they should have been mourning. Now, why we were boast, why they were boasting, we're not told. Considering they were receiving the ridicule of unbelievers, it shouldn't be that they were necessarily re rejoicing in how tolerant they were. That wasn't getting them any cultural cachet. It doesn't seem to make sense then that they would be boasting over the sin since there was no community clout in doing such a thing. But Paul doesn't tell us why they were boasting, just that they were, but they should have been mourning. So it's best not to speculate about why they, should, why they were boasting in the first place. But sometimes we can think, brothers and sisters, that when we tolerate sin, that we're kind of helping the reputation of Jesus out a little bit, right? We aren't. When the church lives like the world... The world doesn't cheer for the church. The world mocks the church. It doesn't applaud the church. It ridicules the church. We don't win by trying to out-tolerate the world. We lose and we close. It doesn't think more of Jesus. That is the world. It thinks less of Jesus. A church that looks like the world is the world. There is no difference. Why would anyone take notice? Why would anyone care? When we sacrifice the church's purity, we harm the church's witness. Continuing in fellowship with professing Christians who refuse to repent unwittingly communicates that the church approves of immoral, immoral conduct, and that lies about Jesus and the gospel. As one writer says, it gives the enemies of God firepower to blaspheme. Such a church is really hindering the Lord's work in the advance of the gospel. The church without discipline is a church without purity and power. By neglecting church discipline, a church endangers not only its spiritual effectiveness, but also its very existence. Remember, God stuffed, snuffed out the church at Thyatira because of moral compromise in Revelation 2. Churches should be salt and light. But if a salt loses its saltiness, Jesus said... It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So when should our church practice discipline? Let me be clear first. The answer to every sin is not 
immediate excommunication. Not every member is in this category. In fact, proportionately in the Corinthian case, few were. One was, members who are walking with Christ don't require excommunication. They require encouragement and praise. Members who are doctrinally ignorant don't require excommunication. They require instruction. Members who need to get moving due to laziness don't require excommunication. They require exhortation. Members who are prone to discouragement due to ongoing trials don't require excommunication. They require comfort and consolation. Members who are starting to go astray don't need to be excommunicated. They need to be warned and admonished. Members who are determined to wander need to be rebuked. And members who stubbornly continue in unrepentant sin after multiple efforts to address it are manifesting apostasy and, yes, do need to be excommunicated. But not everyone falls into that category. So when do we practice church discipline? Well, I think it's communicated in our definition and in the text. Excommunication is to be done when there is public, unrepentant sin that has the potential to corrupt the church and cripple its witness. That's when excommunication is done. The more public the sin, that is the more visible to the eyes and the ears of the congregation, the more persistent the sin, that is unrepentance over time, and the more potential that the sin has for harming the well-being and the witness of the church, then the more likely it will end in excommunication from the church. Obviously, that would include public, unrepentant, and persistent sexual immorality, as Paul indicates here in the passage. But it really includes any public sin that is persistent and has potential to harm the well-being and witness of the church. Notice Paul doesn't limit it to just sexual immorality. Look down at verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So he broadens the application of church discipline beyond just sexual immorality to include all manner of public, persistent, potentially harmful sin that would affect the witness of the church and would harm the well-being of the church. Another one I want to put in this category is non-attendance. People who remove themselves from the church ought to be removed by the church. If we don't, it communicates to the world that Christians who don't go to church can still be called Christians by Jesus. One of the reasons that idea is even in the minds of American professing Christians is because the church has failed to practice church discipline in the past. And it's introduced that whole category which the Bible nor the rest of church history knows anything about, which is a professing Christian that doesn't belong or attend a local congregation anywhere. Maybe an analogy will help. Just don't press it too far as all analogies break down at some point. In baptism, we get the Jesus jersey. And, the church, and church membership puts us on a team. If a person wearing the jersey leaves one team and doesn't join another team, their last team should remove their player status because they aren't part of the league anymore. They may wear the jersey all over town, but no one should expect them to be a real player unless they're playing on a real team somewhere. Otherwise, they're just a fan. And fans of Jesus aren't Christians. Followers are. That's why we discipline non-attending members. 
Not because they don't attend our church, but because they won't attend any church. We want them to attend another church if they would like. They don't have to play on our team, but they do have to play on a team. They have given up their right to call themselves a player, that is a Christian, unless they're playing on a team, that is a church. Otherwise, they need to be put out of the league because wearing the jersey doesn't mean a thing unless you're playing on a team. If you're wearing that jersey, but you're not on a team, and you're running around on the field during a game, something happens to you. You get excommunicated, don't you? The world is doing it better than the church does. But let me say this to round out this point. Church discipline will never happen for people who stop repenting. Repenting sinners are always welcome in the church. Always. The only time that any of us, me included, threaten our membership in a congregation is when we adamantly refuse to stop repenting. Everyone is a sinner, but not everyone's a repenting sinner. Those who refuse to repent have acknowledged that they are relinquishing Jesus because he's no longer their Lord, they are, and they need to be removed. The local church is a hospital for the spiritually sick, but the purpose of hospitals is to get us well. We will always welcome the spiritually sick and never turn them away, but we must never allow the church to be a place where the sick are content with being sick. When we do that, we cease to be a hospital serving the sick and devolve into a hospice serving the dead. Instead of helping people get well, we simply make them more comfortable in their death. So let's keep repenting of our sins and let's keep calling each other to the same. Secondly, how church discipline happens. So when there is public, persistent, unrepentant sin that is harming the well-being of the church or has the potential to and the witness of the church, what do we do? Well, Paul tells us in verses 3 to 5. He says at the end of verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then he tells us how in verses 3 to 5. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So he calls them to remove from the membership the one who is committing this sin. He says this in a couple of different ways. He says in verse 2 that they are to be removed. He says in verse 5 that they are to be delivered over to Satan. He says in verse 7 they are to cleanse out the old leaven. And he says in verses 12 and 13 that they are to exercise judgment on this man's sin and purge him from the church. Now, Paul is just doing what Jesus told him to do. And what Jesus told us to do as a local congregation in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18. Here's what Jesus said. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus tells us how to do church discipline. He says, go one-to-one first. Then, if they won't respond, take a few others with you to make sure you didn't get it wrong. 
and to call them to account and to repentance. And then they won't respond there, take it to the church. And then if they won't respond to the church, remove them from the church. The circle starts small and then widens as it goes. Church discipline is designed to be, to be intentional and respectful of the person's reputation and to deal with sin at the level it needs to be dealt with. But it's not only the pastor's job to do this. It's the church's job. Jesus does not give the final authority for church discipline to the pastors. He gives it to the local church that that member is a part of, which is why he says in the third step, tell it to the church, not tell it to the pastors. Now, the pastors, are, of course, are involved in this at, no, at certain levels, but it's the church's job. James thinks so, too. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone, someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, here's the reality, brothers and sisters. Unless the whole church does it, it won't be done right. Unless the whole church is watching over the whole church, building relationships with the church, and being able to speak into the lives of the church, it won't be done correctly. Because it will, it will either be weakened by being limited to a few people that are expected, uh, uh, supposed to have omniscient knowledge of everything that's going on in the local congregation, and it, and it atrophies that muscle of spiritual discernment and growth in the life of the congregation itself, so that they give up the, their, their responsibility to watch over the well-being of the church members. Who is the best person to confront sin if not the circle of friends in which that person lives? Who among us do you know better than other people that you know of certain things in their life yet you have yet to confront them about those things? What are you waiting on? Who are you waiting on to do it? If, is the Lord not called you to do it? Since you are in the sphere who's got the most capital and, 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 and lifetime with them and relationship and, and time and investment in their lives as a friend or as a brother or sister in Christ? That's why it says, if your brother sins against you, you go to them. If they are in sin, you go to them. And then, as they re respond or don't respond, the circle widens. It's the whole church job. And when the whole church is doing it, that's the best environment for sin to be kept at bay. Because we have many eyes watching over us. We have many hearts caring for us. We have many ears and, and mouths praying for us. We have deep fellowship with one another so that we know those things. But did you notice something here? Paul only brings up the final step in the case of this man. He doesn't talk about the steps that Jesus gave us to walk through. Does this mean that the other aspects of Jesus' command are to be assumed to have already happened? They've already been followed by the Corinthians? Well, I think the text is clear that the church hasn't been doing anything. They haven't been doing step one, step two, step three, or step four. They've been ignoring and tolerating the sin in their midst. They haven't talked to the man about his sin. They haven't taken a small group to the man. They haven't told the church. So why does Paul go right to the final step of excommunication? Because the church has already missed their opportunity to obey the earlier parts of Matthew 18 anyway. It's already public. It's already unrepentant. It's already done great damage to the church's witness, and it's already begun corrupting the church. 
The sin, which may have been more private, has now gone public. The point of the early steps of Matthew 18 is to deal with sin privately for as long as possible. That's out of the realm of possibility now. They have delayed so long and tolerated the sin, and it's so well known, both in the church and in the community, that it demands a decisive action on the part of the church in hopes that some semblance of gospel integrity might be salvageable from this dumpster fire. So what is involved in that final step after appeals have been made individually by a few and the church as a whole? Or what is to be done now that when the sin has already become public and the whole church is aware and the community is aghast? Well, first, the whole church at Corinth are to assemble together under the authority of the Lord Jesus. This is what Paul tells them in verse 3. The final authority and matters of discipline rest with the local congregation of which that person is a member. This is why church membership is so important. Not only does it allow elders to know who they are accountable for, but it enables church members to practice discipline on fellow members. Without membership, there can be no discipline. The words here are clearly congregational. Paul appeals not directly to the church leaders, but to the whole church to excommunicate the unrepentant, incestuous brother. Some might respond that the church is just doing what Paul told them to do. But Paul calls the church to do it in verse 12, indicating the ultimate responsibility and authority lies with the church itself. Yes, Paul is taking leadership, but he's calling the church to do it. He's not exercising the final vote. He's saying, I believe this man is in sin. You should recognize that and remove them. But notice also that the power of the Lord Jesus is present when we do this. Did you see that? Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Sometimes we hear it said that it's unloving to practice church discipline, like the practice is going to push people further away from Jesus. But... Who are we to think we know better than God how to bring someone back to himself? Is this the way he said he will do it? Yes. Is his power unleashed as we do it? Yes. So why would we put ourselves in the way of the power of God? When we refuse to practice church discipline, we are putting ourselves in the way of Jesus in saving his wayward people. But what if they don't come back? That isn't proof that church discipline didn't work. And the power of Jesus wasn't operative. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And if the person doesn't respond to that, they're not a sheep. Second, in the name of the Lord Jesus, they are to remove this man from their fellowship and deliver him to the realm of Satan, that is the world. Delivering a person to Satan is when a church removes the unrepentant professing believer from its membership. The church, the local church, is God's special domain. So in excommunication, the church returns the unrepentant to citizenship in the fallen world. But the goal, look at this, the goal is not punitive, it's redemptive. Paul says what the redemptive purpose is in verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See? The goal is to destroy the sinful desires and impulses of the fleshly nature so that he might be saved. 
This correction is designed to lead to repentance. Paul uses the same language in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, referring to Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So the purpose for Paul handing over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan was that they would be taught taught not to blaspheme. And the purpose of the church of Corinth handing this man over to Satan is so that he will be taught not to commit incest. The goal is restoration, always, that the one in sin will suffer outside of God's blessing, see their sin, and return to Christ. Church discipline must always be carried out with the hope that the person will repent. The goal is not to throw people out of the church, to embarrass them, or exercise authority and power in some unbiblical manner because we're on a power trip. The purpose is to restore a sinning believer to holiness and to bring them back to Christ by helping them to feel the sting of sin's consequences through the church's absence. The only other place in the Bible outside of Paul's letters where handing someone over to Satan is used is Job, chapter 2, verse 6 which says literally, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, I hand him over to you. Only spare his life. And what was the result? Job repented. Job 42, 6 and 7. Now my eyes see you, O Lord, and I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. John Piper says, So Satan becomes the means under God's sovereign control of purifying Job's heart and bringing him closer than ever to God. This is not the only place where God uses Satan to do that. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul describes his thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan, which God appoints for Paul's humility and Christ's glory. Verse 7, To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Jesus is Satan's ruler, and he uses Satan, our archenemy, to save and sanctify his people. He brought Job to penitence and prosperity. He brought Paul to the point where he would exalt in tribulation and make the power of Christ manifest. And Paul hopes that the result of handing over this man to Satan will be the salvation of his spirit at the day of Christ. In other words, Paul's aim, our aim in handing someone over to Satan is that some striking misery will come in such a way that the person will say with Job, my eyes have seen the Lord and I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's why we do it. Thirdly, why church discipline happens. Why church discipline happens. Verses 6 to 8. Let's look at those verses. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So why does Paul tell them that they must practice church discipline? Because that sin doesn't just affect that person. It affects the whole congregation if it's not dealt with. And this is because there's a contaminating element to sin. Far faster than any variant of the coronavirus does sin spread. Like a cancer, it can spread widely and quickly. The point is that the man's sin, if tolerated, would eventually leaven throughout the whole church spread throughout the whole church as leaven goes through bread sin is contagious when we tolerate it in the church and even in our own lives we give it the opportunity to grow and spread we pass it on to our brothers and sisters 
Serious, unrepentant sin in a congregation is a contagion that can spread and pollute, polarize, and paralyze an entire church. When believers see that serious sin continues without rebuke, they begin to think that their own sin is acceptable. And brothers and sisters, I want you to see this is already happening in Corinth. The leavening effect of this man's sin is already happening. I want to show you. Why are they boasting instead of mourning? Because that man's sin has leavened the congregation. It's had a negative spiritual impact on their own response to sin. That's the scary thing about church discipline. If we don't do it, you're next. I'm next. Their non-response to another person's immorality in the congregation was evidence that the man's sin had already exercised its leavening influence in their lives. They had been desensitized to the severity of sin and deceived by the presence of sin. Thus, sin was already growing in the church. And it was sprouting tentacles in all different directions. As we'll see in all these challenges we deal with. All that's resulting from failure to deal with sin in their midst. Church discipline is vital to help this and to keep this from happening. It's a wake-up call for the church for every member to take their sin and other sins seriously. One sin doesn't just affect us. It affects our church. Left unchecked, it will spread like kudzu through a fellowship. It will grow wide and deep and crippling apathy will set in, spiritual entropy will begin, and death will begin knocking at a church's door. If we neglect to do church discipline, we aren't really loving anybody. The Lord, the church, ourselves, or the brother or sister caught in sin. We are contributing to the church's eventual demise. Not dealing with sin is the exact same thing as condoning it. And I want you to see that we solve this problem on the basis of the gospel. There are two ways the gospel shapes our response in church discipline. The first is by recognizing that we as a church have become unleavened. Look, and you see what Paul said there? He says in verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. He says, you are unleavened. You are pure. Wait, no, they're not. Positionally in Christ, they are. At Passover, the Israelites, which is what Paul's referring to here, the Israelites were commanded to sacrifice a lamb, remember, and put its blood on the door frames of their houses so that the death angel would pass by and the firstborn would be spared. In the same way, by the sacrifice of Jesus, Christ, our Passover lamb, and the placing of his blood over us sets us free from judgment, sets us free from sin, both its penalty and its power. And so we are really unleavened. We are really made holy. But secondly, Paul says we are to cleanse out the old leaven. See that in verse 7? He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, for you are really unleavened. What? Paul, it seems like you're talking about says your mouth here. No, because as part of the Passover, the Israelites were to remove leaven from their homes and eat only unleavened bread for seven days because they were going to make a quick getaway and leave behind their life of slavery. And Paul tells them to make haste like this to get out of sin and get sin out of them. Just like the Israelites pack light to get out of Egypt because the death angel was coming and they were going to be released from slavery. Get ready. So Paul says, 
Be that hasty. Be that eager to cleanse out the old leaven in your own church. So if the church is already unleavened, why do we have to remove the leaven to be a new lump? Because the gospel calls us to put into practice what God in Christ has saved us to be. Right? On the one hand, we are unleavened, pure and holy before God, on the basis of Christ's Passover sacrifice for us. On the other hand, if we don't expel the evident sin in our midst, we'll be corrupted and defiled both personally and corporately. Both are true. We must remove everything from the old life that would taint and permeate the new life. That's the Christian life. As Tom Schreiner says, the indicative, that is what's indicated, you are unleavened, is the basis for the imperative, that is the command, clean out the old leaven. But the indicative does not cancel out the need for the imperative. If the imperative is not carried out, it calls into question when one has truly experienced the indicative. Right? Unleavened people cleanse out leaven. That's the mark of unleavened people. So do we want to prove ourselves to be unleavened? Cleanse out the old leaven. That's Paul's thinking. Paul says, be what you are, lest by refusing to be what you are, you prove that you aren't what you say you are. I'll say that again. Paul says, be what you are, unleavened, lest by refusing to cleanse out the old leaven, you reveal that you're still leavened. Now, I want you to see something. This is not a burden. Obedience is not a burden. We aren't working to become something we aren't. We're working to become something we are. When you wake up every morning as a Christian, you're not trying to become something you aren't. You're trying to be what you are. Doesn't that give you a whole lot more hope as you live out your life of sanctification that I'm not just working to become something I'm not? I'm working to live out what I am? That's given me so much hope. You are new in Christ, which is why Paul says, let's celebrate the festival. Verse 8. Our life in Christ is a party, a joyful celebration of out with the old and in with the new. It is a joy to obey Christ in light of the gospel. Out goes things like malice and evil, and in comes things like sincerity and truth. This is not a burden, it's a blessing. We ought to delight in becoming more of what God has saved us to be in Christ and for our church to be the same. Fourthly, fourth and final point, where church, where church discipline happens. Where church discipline happens. Notice verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this, of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since they would need, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Skip down to verse 12. For what I, have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now you may have heard it said, judge not, that you be not judged. And that's certainly true. And Jesus said it, and we should believe it. But that verse is often misapplied. Okay, judge not that you be not judged means don't hold people to unbiblical standards and then judge them by it. Or judge them in a way that you are committing hypocrisy as you judge them. You're doing the very same thing. It's not talking about, it doesn't cancel out verse 12 and 13, that we are to judge believers. Okay? 
So judge not that you be not judged in Matthew 5 is a different context than judge not that you be not judged in 1 Corinthians 5. There's two ways to be judged by God. One is a hypocritical, pharisaical judgment of other believers that is improper, and one is neglecting to exercise church discipline. Both result in the judgment of Jesus on a person for different reasons because they haven't judged correctly in both situations. So in verses 12 and 13, clear lines of demarcation and responsibility are drawn by Paul. Bottom line, God judges those outside the church, that is the lost, the church is called to judge believers inside of it. That's, that's what he's saying in the last verses. That's where church discipline happens. Church discipline doesn't happen in the culture. It happens in the church. Church discipline is to be exercised in the community of faith, not the world. The church's job is not to reform society through church discipline, although we do strive to live as salt and light in the world, but to purify the church as a witness to the purity of God. Now, one of the saddest parts of my life as a pastor today is seeing professing Christians care so much more about discipline, church disciplining the world than they do the church. They give more time and energy and attention to things that are happening politically and socially and pronouncing their judgments on those things than they do ecclesiastically. They are doing exactly the opposite of what Paul tells them to do in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. The church is not called to walk around passing judgments on what the world is doing. They are, the judging is to be exclusively reserved for the church. Believers have comments and thoughts and perspectives and opinions about all manner of cultural matters, but where is their, their zeal for the purity of God's house? Some who lament the loss of prayer and Bible reading in the schools, scarcely ever see them at a prayer meeting or reading a Bible on their own. Those who are quick to speak of the breakdown of the family, they neglect their own children and don't sow into their own marriages. Those who grieve the loss of Christianity in America aren't even making disciples. In fact, many people who identify as evangelicals don't even attend church, according to the latest surveys. As one writer said, the ease with which the present church often passes judgment on the ethical and structural misconduct of the outside community is at times matched only by its reluctance to take action to correct the ethical conduct of its own members. In a previous letter, Paul told the Corinthians not to fellowship or associate with sexually immoral people. And the Corinthians misunderstood this. They, they apparently misunderstood his instructions and applied it to everybody, that they weren't associate to anybody in the world. To associate means to have a close relationship with someone and to treat that person as part of the community. But Paul clarifies that this forbidden association pertains only to professing believers and not to the people of the world, because that's impossible. Removing ourselves from sin and sinners would require us to exit the world altogether, and this is impossible, and it isn't God's plan anyway. John, Jesus prayed this in John 17, As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Of course... This isn't a license to live like the world in every instance, but it is a call to associate. It's not a call to assimilate, and there's a difference. We are not to associate or have close relationships with people who profess to be Christians and yet live in unrepentant, heinous sin. 
We do not associate with them, nor do we even eat with such a one, Paul says. Wow. Now, this would certainly include the Lord's Supper, but it may include more ordinary, regular times of fellowship. Now, just to be clear here, anyone who has dealt with an unrepentant sin and it has to be removed from the congregation is always welcome to attend the worship services of the church. It's not talking about having no contact whatsoever with the person at all, some sort of absolute shunning. Paul's not commanding the breaking of all natural social ties as perhaps you even work with that individual. Does that mean you have to get another job? No. Or maybe you live with them. Does that mean you got to kick them out of your house? No, not necessarily. He is saying that we should flavor all of our interactions with an unrepentant, excommunicated member for the specific purpose of reconciliation and restoration. That should be the primary agenda with all of our interactions. When there is an opportunity to admonish them and try to call them back, that opportunity is taken. In fact, such opportunities should be sought. But the contact should be for the purpose of admonishment and, and restoration and no other. We are not to make them feel at ease by our presence or with our words communicate that their sin is okay to God and to us. A few closing pastoral words and then I'll pray. This sermon has obviously been heavy. It's a heavy passage. It deals in sobering, serious realities, but I want to give us some pastoral words. The manner in which we carry all of this out is as important as the matter we are carrying out. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, to be clear, spiritual means everyone indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Galatians 6, 1 and 2 follows right after Galatians 5, which is talking about living by the Spirit and putting to death the works of the flesh and uh, having the fruit of the Spirit. That's who he's talking about. So brothers are spiritual. We are spiritual. So he says, if anyone among you is caught, and that's the way we should picture people who are in sin, they're trapped, they're caught, right? Maybe they had some volition in the matter. Sure, but they're still caught. Maybe they stepped into the trap, but the trap still grabbed them, okay? And it says we should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So what would that mean? That means we don't just rush through the steps of church discipline. We give adequate time to each step, if possible, so that a person can be reasoned with and encouraged toward repentance. Also, we're not interested in treating church discipline entirely as some sort of raw ecclesiastical process with little regard or consideration for the unrepentant individual's heart. We must also give attention to the differences between different kinds of sinners and how that might affect how long we bear with them in their sin before proceeding to subsequent stages of discipline. This requires great wisdom. According to 1 Thessalonians 5.14, the weak sister needs help. The idle brother needs admonishment. The faint-hearted sister needs encouragement. There is no one-size-fits-all approach here. Different people need different medicine. Also, we must not demand too much from a smoldering wick or a bruised reed. 
The stipulations for repentance and restoration shouldn't be too high for one who has been deeply enslaved in sin's grip. At the first signs of hope, the process stops and the hugs begin. At the first sign of hope, the process stops and the hugs begin. We must also not forget that we too live by the gospel's provision of mercy, don't we? So we don't engage in discipline from a posture of self-righteousness. We aren't standoffish or have an overly severe tone. We must never have a wrongful spirit of retribution. Even if the person has sinned against us, but long more for their return to Jesus than their apology to us. Their soul is far more important than our vindication. We must never discipline for personal reasons or on non-biblical grounds our own or some, some spite or anger. We pursue discipline for no other reason than for the good of the individual, the good of the church, the good of the onlooking community, and the glory of Christ. And finally, we are to truly love the sinner and beg them and the Lord for their repentance. We are to mourn. See, church discipline is loving when it's done that way, is it not? It loves people enough to point out their sin and then guide them to repentance and restoration. And restoration does happen. We've seen it in our own local congregation, and evidently the Corinthians saw it in theirs. Because we read in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians the following words. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. See how hard it is for Paul to write these things? He doesn't delight in any of this. He's crying as he's writing this letter. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, we're not told whether or not that's this man who was disciplined by the congregation and then brought back. But we are told that people started coming back to the church in Corinth and they were being a little bit too standoffish. So they were pendulum swinging. They went from no toleration to absolute to no toleration on the back end. They're like, well, we'll see if that repentance is genuine. We'll see if that repentance is genuine. Talk to me in six months. No. He says, listen, the punishment by the majority is enough, which means the majority of the church must vote to discipline a member. That's clear, right? It doesn't, it's not one or two people here. It's the majority, of the, which also indicates that some members of the congregation may not approve of the discipline. This ain't, or, this ain't heaven yet. It's real world. Church votes don't go 100%. Majority. So when the majority decides, the spirit is leading and you make that decision. But the whole goal is restoration. He says, now turn and forgive them. Turn and comfort them. Turn and overwhelm them lest they be ex exceedingly sorrowful. So reaffirm your love for them. Go up to them and say, I love you. I'm so thankful you're back. And every member should say that. So it appears someone repented in the congregation, perhaps this man, and now Paul is telling the church, forgive them, receive them, comfort them, reaffirm their, your love for them. So church discipline is loving. It shows love for the individual that they might be warned and brought to repentance. It shows love for the church that weaker sheep might be protected. It shows love for the watching world that it might see Christ transforming gospel power. And it shows love for Christ that churches might uphold his holy name 
and obey him. So may God give us grace to do just that. Let's pray together. Father, your word is good even when it's hard. You, you guide us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. And even when your word has sharper angles or harder edges to it, it is spoken from our shepherd who loves us. And Lord, if we know ourselves and we know our own proneness to wander, how we sing it so often, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Lord, if we know that ourselves, how thankful we should be for a church that is willing to practice discipline. Lord, if the reality is if we don't practice discipline as a congregation, I'm not safe in this congregation and none of us are. And we should go find a place where we can be cared for that way. Because if we know our own hearts, we should be fearful of our own hearts. If we know our own remaining sin, even though Christ has broken its power and defeated it so that its penalty is gone, we are still in its presence and we still have its presence within and it's his, its presence is still able to lure and tempt us and draw us away. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful to your word here. We need your spirit to empower us as a congregation, not just to agree that this should be done, but how, when, where. And we need the grace and courage to carry it out and trust that your power, Lord Jesus, will be at work in our membership as we seek to faithfully follow you in these ways. So give us the manner that we need, the gentleness the honor, the respect, the love for the person, the protection of their reputation, the care for them in private before it even becomes public. But when it does, and if it needs to, Lord, help us to even do it with dignity there. And Lord, help us to behave wisely so that your blessing and your smile and your power will be upon us so that immorality will not be tolerated among us, but that redemptive outcomes will be achieved. Christ will be glorified. And the church's mission will be advanced in the world. And in all those things, we will be some happy Christians because we are walking in the ways of the Lord. Help us.